Amen. You know, if you've never been there where that was your prayer, where you're crying out to God and saying, where are you, God? Then hang on, because I promise you there will be moments in your life where you're going to reach a critical crossroads where you're wondering, is God there and is he speaking? If it's not now, it'll probably come at some point when relationships don't go the way you want them to go or they blow up or your kids don't grow up to live up to your expectations or they actually turn against you or friends turn against you or walk out the door or you struggle with depression or you just open up Facebook. I know, I find Facebook so depressing because everybody seems to be doing fine, especially when I'm not doing fine. And it seems that their life is so easy. It's just, it's so easy for them to believe and they post stuff about faith and it's just so effortless, like there's never doubt or struggle or the messiness of, God, you gotta say something. I think I'm getting ready to give up. I was down uh, at our other campus on 12 South. If you've never been there, then it's an old, old building that on the front is big red doors. Have y'all seen this? And it is an Instagrammable location, I think, for everyone under the age of 18. Maybe 20, all right. And I was standing out there the other day, and there were a group of young ladies, and they were all doing their makeup. It was like a movie set, and they were all taking turns standing in front of the red door, you know? And it looked so beautiful, except for the fact they were all arguing. Like, they all hated each other, and they were just going at each other. But as soon as they posed, you would have thought, wow, they love each other. They're having the trip of a lifetime. (laughs) Crossroads are normal. Getting to that place in your journey is normal, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Because uh, we're going to go to the place in the Bible, the very first place in the Bible where God uh, receives a name. And he receives a name from an Egyptian slave girl who is wondering, where are you, God? And he named, she names him Elroy, which is the God who sees me. So I just want you to grasp that, that she names God the God who sees me. The God who sees me. It's like those rescue movies, you know, where they're you know, in the wilderness, and they got the fire going, and the helicopter is on the hill. And they're like, do they see us? Do they see us? You know? And they're waving and shouting like somebody can hear you five miles away in a helicopter. So unrealistic. And then finally, you know, they, they shoot off a flare, and the helicopter goes flying right over them. And they're like, they see us! They see us! And when they say they see us, they're not saying, we're still stuck in the wilderness and we're going to die. What they're saying is they see us, which means they're going to rescue us. And when this woman calls God, you are the God who sees me, it's more than just, oh, you see everybody. She ties something to that. So we're going to be in uh, Genesis chapter 16, and I don't know who my reader is today. Do we have a reader today? Do we? Nobody? All right. Fantastic. Does anybody want to read today? This is your moment, your chance for fame. No? Gail, would you like to read? Let me warn you, it's a long lineage of Hebrew names. All right? Uh, (laughs) You can come over here. It's Genesis chapter 16, but before you get in there, I know, Gail, first of all, would y'all, thank you. Like, mad respect, sister, just mad respect. Uh, 
So we're going to read about this woman, but I've got to prepare you, okay, for this passage. Because <clears throat> what has happened is there's this couple named Sarah and Abraham. And Sarah and Abraham, uh, if you don't know their story, I can't tell you their whole story, but God comes to them in their old age and promises them. They were childless, and God said, I'm going to give you a child. And uh, they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're getting older, and they're getting older. And Sarah decides she's tired of waiting on God to fulfill his promise to her, so she's going to take God's promise into her own hands. And before you judge her, all right, I, just seriously, let's give Sarah a break, shall we? Because there's not a person in this room that hasn't done the same thing. Before we're harsh with her, because think about this. Like, if you're new to church, you get a complete pass on this, all right? But the rest of you goobers that have been coming to church for a long time, let me tell you, Jesus says, and you've heard this before, my peace I give you. In fact, that's something that we have. That's something he's asking us to live in, walk in, embrace, hold, and let it define our very lives. That's his promise. But sometimes we don't feel that promise. And when we don't feel that promise, we do a lot of things within our own power to get peace. I mean, think about it. What do you do to get peace? I don't feel peaceful. My life is restless. I'm not feeling contentment. You know what I need? A new car. That's what I need is a new car. <laughs> I know, you know. Or some of you are going, I need a really nice used car, all right? Or I need a new job. That's what I need. If I had a new job or if I had more money, here's another one. I need a new boyfriend. If I had a new boyfriend... I need a new husband. The old husband, he doesn't work anymore. I either need to change him or I need to replace him. I need a new church. How many times have you ever thought this when you left small group? I need a new small group. Every one of you, all right? I know you have. Or I need a vacation or I need a new hobby or get this one. You know what I really need? You know what would really give me peace in my life? A new series on Netflix. If I could just find a new series. <laughs> we do it all the time. So, hey, give Sarah a break, all right? She's scared. She's tired of waiting on God, and she's deciding God needs my help. And anytime we say that to God, trust me, trouble's coming. Hence the story of Hagar. Genesis chapter 16. Sorry. The whole chapter. I know. I know. <laughs> and if you're one of those people, if you're like me, I'm, I'm, I have attention deficit disorder, all right? And so uh, just try, all right? Fight to hear somebody read, all right? Follow along. I think they're going to put it on the screen. If they don't, that's okay. We have Bibles everywhere, and Genesis, they're in the window. Dave, Chris is going to uh, hand out. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. Okay, we've got to stop because way too many of us are playing church now, all right? We cannot play church. We are here to meet with Jesus, so <sighs> Holy Spirit, help us. Go. Yes, I am ready. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, who she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Yes, that's what she said. You caught that, right? <laughs> Don't judge, all right? Keep going. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Yep. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar 
and gave her to her husband to be his wife. She slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Yeah, she said that. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Oh, that is so great. Give her applause. <laughs> yes, the translators decided to just leave a little bit of Hebrew in there. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Wow. Lord, uh, we pray that, Lord, you would protect us from being people that all we bring to you is our mind and wanting to understand. I pray now, Lord, you would rescue us from all our protective mechanisms and allow your Holy Spirit now to take truth and travel that journey from our mind to the 12 inches down to our heart to transform our souls. Do not leave us the same, for we are Hagar. In Christ's name, amen. So let's try to get our head around this story because Sarah and Abraham had been promised by God that they were going to uh, have a child, they were getting old, and uh, if you go back just two chapters, you see that Sarah and Abraham were in Egypt. I've got to prepare you. If, if you're reading that story and you think the Bible is about really good people that God finds and then uses to do good things, this story is going to blow your mind because Sarah and Abraham made a lot of bad choices. The Bible is actually about a God of mercy who comes to very messy, unfinished, incomplete people that are making messes of their lives and decides to pour mercy and grace and the gospel on them. We could just stop right there. Let's just go <laughs> sing and pray. But what had happened was they had this slave that had been given to them by Pharaoh who was married to Sarah because Adam, Abraham kept his mouth shut I know, it gets messy. And so they got this slave. Her name is Hagar. And so they're, they're out of Egypt now, and 
Sarah began to question whether or not God was going to fulfill his promises. Now, culturally at that time, the woman was responsible in the family for bearing children to continue the legacy of the husband and the family name and to grow the family. And if a woman was unable to bear children, it was her responsibility then to find women who could bear children and bring them into the family. That was the cultural norm at the time. Sarah decided that she was going to take the way of the world, not the way of faith, and she was going to use the way the world functions and bring that into her home, hoping that God was going to bless it. So she gave Hagar to Abraham, and Abraham said, okay, we don't have time to talk about Abraham, but like, he marries Hagar. She gets pregnant. And then, lo and behold, Hagar despises Sarah. Think about the family dynamics. She's now the pregnant one. She now bears the heir. She's the slave. And now she, she despises her master. But is she a master, or are they both co-wives now? And Sarah, caught up in the complexities of all that is happening, and despising the fact that she brought this whole thing into her home and thinking, this is a bad idea. She goes to Abraham and goes, this is your fault. <laughs> I know. I mean, I've never heard of a woman blaming her husband for anything ever before either. <laughs> Shocker. So Abraham turns to his wife, Sarah, and says, she's your slave. Do whatever you want with her. Coward. And what does she do? She sits down and thinks, what's the best thing I can do in this situation? She abuses Hagar. That's her best choice. I'm going to abuse her. And I'm going to abuse her so bad, and we don't have any details about the abuse. But here's what was so bad. This pregnant woman, who is a slave, decided it is better for me to run away into the desert than to live another day under this abuse. That's what was going on. And God came to her. And this is where she gives God the name. You're, you're the God who sees me. And this is where, as a preacher, I could choose now to stop and go, and the Lord sees you. You know, <laughs> you know he has his eye on the sparrow, and now he has his eye on you. And that we could talk about how God sees everyone and he's this benevolent God and isn't it comforting to us all that in our hard situations that God sees us. I'm not going to go that road. Did you guess? Because here's what I want to do is I want to show you that God does something in this passage that when he does this, we should put on the brakes and we should ask ourselves, what's going on? And what God did was he asked Hagar two questions. The benevolent, all-knowing God who holds the past, the present, the future in his hand, that nothing is a mystery to him, and yet he's asking questions. We should ask what's going on. And the first question he asks, he says, Hagar, where have you come from? God is asking Hagar, where have you come from? Can you imagine how Hagar would answer that question? Well, I'll tell you where I've come from. I've been a slave my whole life. That's what I've come from. Then I was given to Abraham, who lied to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh drop-kicked me out of Egypt. And now I'm out in the desert with this weird couple called Abraham and Sarah. I've been human-trafficked my entire life. 
And now this woman decides I'm now a sex slave. And now she's giving me to her husband against my own will to where I have to sleep with this guy. And he's in his 80s. Where have I come from? I'm abused. I'm mistreated. And I've got a crazy woman who's trying to kill me because she's convinced that God's going to get her pregnant when she's old. I'm running for my life. I'm running for the life of my child. Where have I come from? And look at me. Now I'm here at the spring. And let me give you a little historical note. There weren't a lot of springs in the desert. So the springs were treacherous places. You don't go there as a woman all by yourself, pregnant, because this is where everybody gathered. It could easily be the place where there were bandits, all kinds of mischief, and people that would not have made this a safe place for Hagar. So why did God want Hagar to answer that question? Out of all the questions, why do you think God was asking her that? Is it possible that God is saying to Hagar and he's also saying to us, if you don't deal with your past, your past is going to deal with you. So let me ask, where do you come from? Do you know? Do you know where you come from? Do you know the story that has plopped you right here this Sunday morning right now? How would you tell the answer to that story? And what impact has your past had on you right now? Like, let me ask you a simple question. Like, where did you learn how you treat money? Who taught you that? Like, if you say, well, everybody does it my way. No, they don't. They don't, promise you. If we got into the way you deal with money, we would probably have a lot of, huh, that's weird kind of comments. Who taught you that? Like, some of you save a lot. Some of you, like, anchor your security and how much money you have in the bank account. And that number is a flexing number because it's really never enough. Some of you have learned growing up that you give it all away. Some of you have nothing in the bank. In fact, you believe it's a sin for you to have any money at all. Make the last check bounce, and you make that bounce every day. Where did you learn how to treat money? Like, who taught you about who you are? You all have opinions about who you are. You have the opinion about you that you keep hidden in your heart that whispers to you every day. You know what they say, that you're the most influential person in your life because nobody talks to you as much as you do. And when that voice starts talking, what is it telling you about who you are? Who taught you who you are? How has your past taught you what, who you are? How has what has happened to you taught you about you? How has what you've done taught you about who you are? How about the things you left undone? How do you deal with grief and loss? Who taught you about that? Did you learn, hey, the past is the past, man. Get it off of me. I don't think about the past. I just move on. I got no rearview mirrors in my life. Have you decided that grief is a waste of your time and ever considering a loss is just for people that can't cope with reality? Where did you learn to deal with anger? And when I say deal with anger, either you learned that anger is the commodity that you spend in every relationship, 
Our anger is the thing that never, never, never comes into a relationship or anywhere in between. Who taught you that? How did the past teach you that? Where did you get your view of sex? I mean, think about it. You all have a view of sex. You all have a view of your own sexuality. Where did that come from? Like, do you think that there, your past has some kind of influence on your present understanding of that for your own life? How do you deal with conflict? Do you know how you deal with conflict? Because if you don't know how you deal with conflict, ask somebody that does life with you because they know how you deal with conflict. So I meet with couples a lot, and a lot of times I'm meeting with them before I uh, have a chance to marry them. And, and I ask them, so tell me about how you guys deal with conflict. And they look at each other and they smile and they say, we've never had a conflict. And I, I go, let's stop and pray because finally I have found the ones <laughs> to have the perfect marriage. No, you think about that, and then I ask them, so tell me who you fought with when you were growing up in your home. And she named somebody, maybe a father, maybe her mother, or maybe a sister or a brother. And I ask her about how she fought with them and then I ask him the same question, and you start seeing a pattern of how their family taught them about conflict. Their past was now informing their present, which was determining their future. Here's another one. How do you deal with people's expectations? So I grew up in a home, let, let me tell you, I grew up in a home where expectations were unspoken. Did anybody ever grow up in that kind of home? And that the thought was, I shouldn't have to tell you what I expect, but I should hold you accountable to what I do expect. And so when you don't meet my expectations, I'm disappointed. But I didn't know that was your expectation. And then this language would come out. You should have just known. Did anybody ever receive that? Can I get a witness? Hey man, I got one person. I'm all alone. I'm on an island. I'm like Hagar in the desert. <laughs> if we don't take the moment to take a look at our past and how it's informed us, then we don't know what to put down. If, if we don't take time to look at what the past has taught me, say, for example, about your sexuality. If you're like, this is my view of sexuality, and that's never challengeable. Guess what? That's going to define your present, and that's also going to define your future. And so the first thing that God says to Hagar is, where did you come from? Because he wants her to embrace that because he's going to send her back, but he's not going to send her back the same way she came. Yeah, he's going to send her back. So my dad, man, dad was a sweet guy, uh, loved laugh, and he had a wallet that was about that thick. I'm not kidding you. I, it was like, I don't even know how he got it in his back pocket. It was one of those foldable kind that he had a crank on, you know, to fold it. And it had business cards from like 50 years back, like back when they didn't print them on paper, but they carved them in wood and stuff, you know? And he had that thing stuck back here because that's what men did. Men had wallets, like serious wallets. In fact, when I turned 13, you know what I got for Christmas? A wallet. I didn't have anything to put in it, but I got a wallet, and we were taught you wear wallets. My dad had back problems. I'm not joking. 
Do you know why he had a back problem? Because every time he sat down, he had one cheek about 12 inches lower than the other. I know, and you look at it, I don't carry a wallet. I broke my family tradition, which breaks my father's heart. What's in your pocket? What's in your pocket? I mean, come on now. Let's, what has happened to you in your life? What has happened? Do you know what's happening? Because all of you have had stuff happen to you. Like, when you reach into your pocket, do you find, I can't make anybody in my life unhappy? I've got to make everybody in my life happy. Is that in your pocket? If you reach down in the pocket, will you find, I can never fail? I'm never allowed to fail. Is if I reach deeper in your pocket, would you say, sex is dirty and it's embarrassing and it's something we should never talk about in church? And it's certainly something that I can't celebrate in my marriage. If I reach deeper in your pocket, would I find you have a mantra? You are what you do, so do more. Nobody can be trusted. You're all alone in this world. I'm afraid that people will see through me and find that I'm really an imposter. I'm damaged goods. You don't know what's happened to me. I'm afraid of becoming my parents. What I find, I've been tired for 10 years, and even though everybody thinks I'm happy, I'm actually miserable. Elroy, the God who sees you, he says, where have you been? Where are you coming from? Pick it up. Now put it down, because God wants us to pick something else up. And it's in question two. He says, Hagar, where are you going? And guess what? Hagar can't answer the question. She doesn't know. So God says, I'll tell you where you're going. And what does he do? Man, our God takes this Egyptian foreign woman that we have nothing in common with. You're not a slave. You're not an Egyptian. She's racially different. She's culturally different. She's socially different. In every way, she's different, yet in every way, we completely relate to her. And God looks at her and says, you know where you're going? You're going in my promises. And my promises, you're going to have a son. And then you're going to have descendants. And there are going to be nations born out of you. The God who sees her didn't just see her and then walk away. He was the God who saw her and then said, prepare yourself, extend your arms because I'm about to pour promises out on you. Do you know that that's true for us? Do you know that when Christ went to the cross that he didn't just forgive us? We talk about this all the time. He cleaned me up on the cross my sins are forgiven so that at the resurrection he can fill me up he cleaned me up to fill me up and what does he fill me up he fills me up with all his promises and what are the promises of God let me give you a few there are over 7,000 of them in the Bible that you serve a God who is a God of promises that God says he will help you and he will guide you that's one of his promises that he will never leave you 
that through his son's work on the cross, he promises to be faithful to you and to forgive you, to never forsake you. He promises to give you salvation. He promises to give you wisdom. He promises to give you peace, joy, and love. He promises to give you riches in heaven. He promises to adopt you into his family and call you son and daughter. He promises to give you strength and power. He promises to give you provision for everything you need in life and godliness, for everything that he calls you into. He's going to give you everything you need and everything you don't need. He promises he's not going to give you that. He promises to give you eternal life, deliverance from your enemies, from danger, from temptation, and he promises to make all things new. And this is the beautiful, maybe the most beautiful part. He's not promising to renew. He's promising to make new. Yeah. God sees us as he saw Hagar. He promised her and he promises us. So I'm out of time. How do we step into those promises? And this is my favorite part. Because what we're going to do right now, we're going to step into those promises. At the crossroads of where are you, God? God says, I'm right here. Where are you? Where do you come from? Pick it up, put it down. Now pick this up. My promise is for you. And here's the promise. Kissing. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? There's a story in the book of Luke where he tells about a prodigal son, and this, maybe you've read this story, where this son completely abuses his father. He goes to his father and culturally violates every cultural norm and says, Dad, I want money. I'm tired of living in your house. I need lots of money because i got a big life I want to go live. And so his father has to sell property and take treasures and sell them and says, here's your inheritance, son. And he takes the inheritance and he goes and squanders them in a foreign land and does all the kind of stuff his father would never do and shames his father's name. Everybody knows what's going on. And when he's at the end of his rope, when he has no other place to go, when he's facing death, he comes back covered in pig. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And he's walking back to his dad. His clothes are ripped and torn. And Jesus is given this picture of this filthy, just filthy, my past has left me filthy. And he's walking back to his dad. And his dad sees him from far off. His father saw him. It was filled with compassion and love for his son. And he ran to his son, and look what he did. He threw his arms around them and began to kiss him. Kiss him. Why? Just kissing that past right off of him. And he says, son, the way you receive my promise is to let me kiss you. Let me kiss you. And he resisted. He said, Dad, you don't understand. You don't understand. But the father wasn't listening. And his father just kept kissing, kept kissing. And faith at that moment was expressed in letting his father kiss him. And then he didn't stop at kissing. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Restore him back to the family. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let the world know that he belongs here. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's have a party. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found, so they began to celebrate. Do you know that embracing the promises of God for your life is letting him kiss you and being willing to enter into the party that he is throwing for you? I know. <laughs> Crazy.
crazy for us to think about that. And how do we do that? How do we enter into that party? The prayer that we started this sermon with um, was from Psalm 13, where he's saying, where are you, God? My enemies are triumphing over me. I, I don't know where you are. Listen to how it ends. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Kiss me. And I will sing the Lord's praises, for he has been good to me. I know. It's singing. It's singing. And then in Ephesians it says we sing together. And the beauty of us singing together is that we're shouting God's promises over each other. That's why we need each other. That's why it's important that we keep reminding each other the promises of God so we keep coming into the party of His grace and the party of His kissing and go make me new so that my past isn't bound to repeat itself in my future, but His promises now are dictating my future. So I was with some friends yesterday and we were uh, talking about one of our friends who uh, is a pastor in Goma which is the Dominican Republic of Congo, which uh, we were talking about about a year and a half ago. They finished their church building, and they're standing there, and they're rejoicing because the Lord had given them a church building, and the floor is made out of volcanic ash. Like, and I'm looking at that going, why are you rejoicing? Like, like none of you would be rejoicing if you came in here and our floor was volcanic ash. Like, yeah, you got to wear shoes. No barefoot here, all right? Just, sorry, gravel. We go, what are they thinking here? What's going on? And yet they're praising the Lord. Why? Well, because they're trusting in the promises of God. So if you don't know this, Goma was hit with a volcanic eruption a few months ago, maybe six months ago. And this eruption uh, caused the whole town to flee, lava flowing everywhere, it cut off people uh, by main roads, it destroyed, killed a lot of people. And then after that eruption, maybe you know this, earthquakes have been hitting that part of the country nonstop. They don't even know how many earthquakes. Guess what was left standing in that town? Yeah, a little church. Because they built the foundation of vol volcanic ash, which they say is so stable that even an earthquake won't bring it down. Is it possible that the very things in your past that Jesus now is kissing you in are the very vehicles of his promises for where he's calling you? I think so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Hagar, this messy story of a God who sees how you've come into her life and you gave her the courage to pick up her past and then put it down and then pick up your promises. I pray that for us. I pray, God, whatever we brought into this room right now, that we would not be afraid to go back to go forward, that we would not be afraid to see, uh, Lord, what we bring to this beautiful table of grace, only to see you now kiss us and dress us in the robes of righteousness and call us sons and daughters. 
Would you do that now, Father? Would you give us courage now to rejoice with each other, to sing your promises over our own hearts and our lives? In Christ's name, amen.